If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. They had lessons from Edith Garrod in Jiu-Jitsu, and the women carried Indian clubs. That was Emmeline Godfrey on martial arts and female suffrage. What tempted me to write the book was to answer the questions. Did it matter? Did people die in vain, or was it important? And what was it like? And that was Jonathan Dimbleby on the Battle of El Alamein. Welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus, we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. We've also recently launched a Kindle Fire edition, and you can get that on the Kindle newsstand. You can find more details of all our editions, plus great subscription offers, on our website, historyextra.com. And if you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter, at historyextra, or on Facebook, forward slash historyextra. Although suffrage campaigners are known for their direct methods of protest in the early years of the 20th century, their use of martial arts is less familiar. Emmeline Godfrey's research into the phenomenon is featured on an upcoming BBC4 documentary and is the subject of a feature in the new issue of BBC History magazine. Our books editor, Matt Elton, went to meet her. Please excuse the small amount of interference in this and the following interview. We've had a couple of technical issues that we're working on rectifying, but I hope you'll bear with us because what Emmeline has to say is fascinating. Okay, so suffragettes are associated with some degree of militancy, but the notion of a jiu-jitsu suffragette is even more direct. Uh, What do these women do? Well, we have to look really back at the 19th century to understand where the Women's Social and Political Union and various other associated militant suffragette organisations actually came from. And in 1832, under the Reform Act, women were effectively locked out of the political system for the first time because the clause actually said that the vote was given to a certain number, a certain number of male persons. Now, during the 19th century, various individuals and organisations tried to raise consciousness as to, you know, what votes for women. And, uh, for instance, John Stuart Mill, the political thinker, campaigned for women's rights and women's voices. Uh, And then we also see a link, especially at the end of the 19th century, towards women uh, and political disenfranchisement and sexual and gender inequality. So, for instance, in the 1860s, 
there was a campaign, it was actually the 1860s, the Contagious Diseases Acts were brought in by the government and this was to control uh, prostitutes in various port towns and they actually forcibly examined prostitutes. Uh, and this was, many feminist critics at the time said, well, this was actually an anti-woman policy devised by the men in power. Okay. So at that time there was a link, and this link continued with the Women's Social and Political Union, this link between women's sexual uh, discrimination and the lack of the vote and the lack of the voice. So by the end of the 19th century we see more organisations being formed to petition for the vote and then the Women, National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies came along in 1897 but Emmeline Pankhurst was somewhat impatient with their methods and in 1903 she formed the Women's Social and Political Union. Now, this was more of a militant organisation which was kind of it, the, the idea was basically to uh, work against MPs who had promised women's suffrage but then went back on the promise. And the Women's Social and Political Union, they weren't afraid of breaking the law in order to make their point. Now, when we look later on at some of the activities that they got up to, we can see how the jujit suffragettes really emerged out of all of that. Because on the one hand, the Women's Social and Political Union, they, uh, they engaged in some peaceful activities such as various bazaars and, and festivals and creating jewellery and all this kind of, sort of nice stuff. But at the same time, increasingly, when they became more and more frustrated, they resorted to smashing windows and attacking not just public but private property. So by 1910, the jiu suffragettes appeared on the stage and they were headed by Edith Garrod, who was the, the trainer for, 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 the, for the suffragettes at that time. So why specifically jiu-jitsu? Um, it's not something that I would automatically associate with the period. Well, jiu-jitsu really took off as a result of an increasing attitude against violence in the 19th century. So, yeah, people were still using revolvers and knives and various weapons, but there was a movement against using those. And what happened was in 1898, Edward William Barton Wright, who was an Anglo-Scottish engineer, he had been to Japan and he came back with his knowledge of Japanese martial arts, which was great because he really filled a gap in the market for a method of self-defence that was minimally violent. As he said, you know, this is an alternative to using a pistol. Use Bartitsu, my new art of martial art. And Bartitsu was a name, actually, it was a mixture of his name, Barton Wright, and Jiu Jitsu. So it's a kind of bit of a brand name. Uh, and he invented this particular form of self defense and promoted it in various articles and extremely important periodicals, the Time Pearson's magazine, which is almost as popular as The Strand. Uh, and he actually founded the Bartitsu Club in London, where he not only offered classes for men, but also later on for women too. So this was a really important point in women's self-defence training in the 1900s. And one of his pupils was Sadakazu, well, actually, he was actually an assistant, Sadakazu Uyunichi, and he was, um, and one of his pupils, William Garrod, went off to teach jiu-jitsu, and his wife, Edith Garrod, would help him with the women's and children's courses. And Edith herself became a bit more self-confident, and she got to the point where actually she... Uh, was asked to appear at the Women's Social and Political Union Bazaar. And she was quite nervous because it was really meant to be William who was heading the, the demonstration, but he was actually taken ill. So uh, Emmeline Pankhurst came up to her and said, yeah, you can do it, you know, get to the stage, you can do this. 
So Edith sort of got to the stage um, you know, quite nervously and then she gave her performance and it was a resounding success and it was really warmly reported. So that's really how Edith Garrett became involved in the suffragettes. And, and what was great about using jiu-jitsu for these militant purposes was that by 1910, it was considered acceptable sport for women. I mean, there were other sports which were up to subject to debate, like hockey, for instance, like swimming. Um, but I haven't really seen anything negative about jiu-jitsu for women. In a sense, it was because it was Japanese and refined and, uh, and exotic. And yet, you know, there was something, you know, quite graceful about the performance of jiu-jitsu too. Uh, and also, it, it, you know, fit the idea of it being minimally violent, which was fantastic for the suffragette um, purpose, which was, you know, to, to try as much as possible not to, you know, cause violence or to attack people or, you know, to, to, to injure others. So that was great from that point of view, too. So how many women were involved in these jujitsu training sessions? We're not actually sure how many women were involved in Edith Gowrid's jiu-jitsu classes, but we do know that there was a regular slot uh, for the classes, and we also know that these women would have encountered all kinds of violence when they were going about their duties. I mean, even a woman who was um, crouching on the pavement, choking the details of the recent meeting, uh, she could be thrown on the ground, she could be accosted, she could you know, have all kinds of verbal insults thrown at her. Uh, often at rallies where women got up to speak, they were often insulted by members of the general public who just came along for a laugh. And, uh, and you know, a lot of really quite violent words were shouted at women who, beha- who didn't behave in a ladylike manner. So in a sense that chivalry at that point, you know, it sort of kind of walked out the door pr- pretty much. Um, so there was definitely a need to learn self-defence. And I think one of the um, darkest episodes in suffragette history was Black Friday of the 18th of November 1910. And that was actually a re- result of the conciliation bill, which the government had been discussing at the time. It was a kind of scrappy, piecemeal kind of bit of reform. And uh, the suffragettes really weren't pleased with the way that this was shoved under the carpet. So a deputation was sent and around 300 women or so followed. And at that time, the police were told not to arrest the women, but rather to kind of just keep them back. So what resulted was a six-hour confrontation where the women were just kicked about, you know, uh, breasts twisted. Women were sometimes apparently um, sent up side streets and, you know, goodness knows what happened down the side streets. Uh, So there was a lot of sexual violence going on and um, and I actually think after that time there was the idea that perhaps women should be engaging in um, militant campaigns that involved direct arrest not just simply you know being subjected to such you know six hour long forms of abuse basically uh, so there really was a danger in being a militant suffragette and even if even if you weren't completely militant even if you were just doing normal you know campaigning you could you could definitely incur the wrath of the public, increasingly so as we got to the First World War when more and more items of uh, personal property were destroyed and public opinion was starting to turn against the suffragettes at points. That's really interesting. One of the fascinating things in the article is how you mention how they used um, kind of everyday objects as weapons. Mm. Um, What led to the choice of these particular objects? Well, the dog whip uh, had a particularly interesting place in suffragette history because 
When you look at 19th century fiction, there's so many examples of a man saying to another man, oh, you know, he should be horsewhipped or he should be whipped. And, and it's a kind of form, derisory form uh, of, you know, um, talking to another man to actually say, well, I don't think anything of you, you know, you should be whipped. And what the suffragettes did was they used the dog whip, which was an everyday item. It sounds quite violent nowadays, but it was something that you could buy in the shops to train dogs. And, um, and they would use this not only as a form of simple self-defence, which didn't rely on a revolver uh, or a life preserver, which was a type of um, truncheon at the time, uh, or anything more aggressive, just, just a simple weapon. Uh, and they would use that as a kind of way of saying, well, actually, you, you, know, you, you dogs over there, you curs, if you're going to treat us like this, you deserve to be dog whipped. <laughs> So that was one example of one type of weapon. But other, um, other more secretive forms of self-defence involved uh, wearing cardboard armour, which is what Catherine Willoughby Marshall talks about in her Suffragette Escapes and Adventures, which is at the Museum of London. And uh, she talks about putting this armour on underneath her, her clothing. And her husband actually doesn't want her to go to this particular um, type of event that she's going to. But, you know, she said, well, she'll wear this armour to, to protect her. So people often made, made these sort of um, home weapons, in a sense, too, because the message really was that suffragettes are, you know, they, they, they're trying to uh, campaign for the vote using um, socially acceptable forms of, of self-defence. It w wouldn't do to go and piercing people with hat pins and stabbing them with knives. <laughs> so were these women um, used for any organised form of um, kind of um, activism? Uh, yes, actually, there were 30 women, roughly, uh, who became part of the bodyguard, which was formed in 1913 to protect Mrs. Pankhurst from re-arrest under the Cat and Mouse Act of that year. And um, what actually happened was the government um, would release various hunger, thirst and sleep strikers uh, and you know, allowed them to go back home to recover uh, under police guard, recover sufficiently, and then they would see out the rest of their sentences in jail. But the problem was, at that time, so many of the key leaders were going to jail and the decision was made that ultimately people like Emmeline Pankhurst should be protected from re-arrest so that she could go off and make motivational speeches and kind of rally uh, support. So um, the bodyguard, which was headed by Gertrude Harding, and she was a Canadian uh, woman who'd actually just come over to the UK. She didn't know much about voting at all before that point and suddenly became involved with the suffragettes. Um, she headed the bodyguard and uh, they had lessons from Edith Garrod in jiu-jitsu and the women carried Indian clubs which had been used in exercise classes uh, and they would turn up whenever Emmeline Pankhurst was going to give a speech at a designated location. Sometimes this location was kind of um, announced to very few people last minute. Was she going to be there? Was she not going to be there? And what would happen with Emmeline Pankhurst with her um, motor car hat would turn up and, uh, and, and she'd give a speech and she's in a kind of partly emaciated state at that time, really quite weak. Uh, and she'd give a speech uh, and then the authorities would find out about that. They would come in and try to go for Mrs Pankhurst. But the real Mrs Pankhurst was off in a car because they actually, the woman that they were trying to seek was a decoy who had just stepped in to take her place. So um, they often provide disguises for her as well. And then, you know, the bodyguard would come in and sort of... Um, protect themselves against uh, the police and various authorities, um, you know, by, by brandishing their clubs. So there were some very, very narrow escapes. And that was one 
that particular instance that I've just recounted was an example where the bodyguard was successful. But there was another uh, instance uh, in 1914 in St Andrew's Hall in Glasgow, which was, oh, it was a complete nightmare because... Emily and Pancras was due to speak again and um, surrounding the stage there were flowers and underneath was barbed wire and uh, once she'd given her speech again the authorities got wind of it, uh, rushed up, some of them were sort of scrabbling around on the barbed wire so they couldn't quite get to the stage <laughs> and then a fight broke out where the bodyguard wielded their weapons, used all kinds of stuff that came to hand, plant pots and you name it. <laughs> um, unfortunately Mrs Pancras was arrested then and she was taken off. Uh, and Mary Richardson, who was one of the militant suffragettes, actually protested about that, against that. And uh, she slashed the um, Venus, um, Velasquez Venus, at the National Gallery. There's a couple of gashes down it. And um, basically, there's a protest to, you know, depictions of idealised women and personal property. And, you know, basically, the government was torturing women in prisons using uh, hunger striking. But here we have, you know, this this lovely portrait, which is up on the wall. So it was a kind of, um, you know, she was really quite annoyed about all of that. But things really got to head just before the First World War. And uh, it was pretty intolerable by that point. But then the Women's Social and Political Union, when the war did come along, they decided to actually really help with the war effort. And that's some historians um, sort of believe that, that the women's war effort was something that contributed to them getting uh, the, the, the franchise ultimately, although it was women over 30 after the war. To what extent do you think um, the actions of this movement filtered into wider public perception? Oh, I think there was a lot of public interest in jiu-jitsu, women's freedom, and, and I think there were both positive and negative reactions. When we look at the negative reactions, for instance, the Illustrated London News uh, described the woman with the dog whip, Helen Ogston, who had actually appeared at the Albert Hall wielding her dog whip, uh, and she, they likened her and other campaigners to drunkards. So it's a pretty unfavourable comparison. Uh, however, there were so many feature articles in various periodicals of the time that actually showed women in a really strong position, uh, and particularly jiu-jitsu suffragettes. And even if they perhaps slightly poked fun at them in a way, it wasn't an unkind kind of way. Uh, for instance, Health and Strength magazine had an article featuring um, jiu-jitsu suffragettes and new terror for the London police. And there were some pictures uh, accompanying that, for instance, the policeman versus the campaigner herself, and she's dressed in a feminine manner, and the policeman's approaching her, and he's about to do a move on her, and she's about to do a move on him. Because let's not forget, also, the police at the time were trained in martial arts too. So, um, so there was one positive example there. And then also um, Edith Garrod wrote uh, for Health and Strength magazine. This is actually the oldest known English martial arts and, well, physical culture magazine known um, and it started about 1898 and uh, there's a piece called Damsel versus Desperado by Edith Garrod and she sort of envisages um, a utopian kind of society where a woman can just walk around down a really dark woods um, carrying her purse from her hand and uh, not worrying about anything not even the ruffian who's coming up from behind because she throws them over her shoulder so, um, and then also Edith wrote a piece for Votes for Women, uh, where she actually said that jiu-jitsu was a kind of way of giving a bit of a kickstart to evolution, because while at the moment women are a bit uh, weaker than men, ultimately in the future they will be as strong as men, but jiu-jitsu will just give them that little kind of push in the right direction. 
So there was that. Uh, and then there were many in individuals and stars involved uh, in jiu-jitsu, for instance, vaudeville stars, actresses at the time, um, even some politicians. So it was actually, jiu-jitsu was in some sense... Uh, a sport that was used by a number of people for different purposes and each person put their own spin on martial arts. So, for instance, uh, yeah, the police would use martial arts, but then also the women campaigning against um, male violence would also use them too. So, um, and each woman put her own kind of identity. So, for instance, Edith Garrett would go around dressed in a very feminine, dainty manner, but Emily Watts, who was one of the first female instructors, and she wrote her own book... Uh, and uh, she actually presented herself in the full costume, um, throwing herself around and, and others around on damp lawns. So it's kind of, um, it was nice the way that martial arts was used as a form of individual expression for each person and organisation. And I think that's why the general public really took to that as well. How do you think the movement fitted into um, wider Victorian and Edwardian uh, notions of femininity? Well, we have to kind of look back at the 19th century at uh, Victorian notions of what the ideal woman was to then consider how the Women's Social Political Union and other organisations either fit in to some extent or challenge that. Uh, and the 19th century, there were the, the idea that the woman uh, was the kind of angel in the house, that you know she would help her husband, that she would make uh, the domestic hearth beautiful, uh, that she um, would in some sense... Um, make the house a place for the husband to retreat to when he'd come back from all his uh, work in the city and all the danger surrounding that. But the problem with that was that, you know, there were some women who couldn't get married and or, you know, for some, some women, marriage was a very, very dangerous affair indeed. And especially 1880s, 1890s, there was a much stronger critique of marriage itself as a so-called failure. So... There was very much a kind of literary movement looking at not only the critique of marriage, but also the position of women who couldn't get married, the so-called odd women out, the odd women. And um, the Women's Social and Political Union uh, very much saw women from all kinds of backgrounds, mainly middle class, mainly affluent, but they would rebel in a sense uh, against the, the stereotype of the woman who stayed at home, didn't voice her political thoughts, uh, was a pleasant dinner companion. Uh, and actually, they, they challenged those ideas. And not only that, but in a sense, they also conformed to the idea of a woman who could be feminine and dainty. And uh, Emmeline Pankhurst was particularly keen not to offend existing views of what a woman should look like, because that would actually alienate a number of the general public. So dainty was the real buzzword in the movement. And she actually you know, suggested that women uh, dress fashionably, like ladies, but, you know, they'd still go around smashing windows. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, there were, there, were, there were various things they could do. They could also um, wear especially designed jewellery and, um, you know, these huge Edwardian hats, which um, Edith Garrard herself actually wore in one of the demonstrations that she gave to the fashionable sketch magazine from 1910. And the hat that she wore stayed in place throughout all of her manoeuvres when she was defending herself against a policeman. Um, but they f it finally fell off in the last picture when ultimately, I mean, nobody could have kept a hat like that on their head. So even Edith Garrett herself, who was really quite rebellious, nonetheless still 
conform to that particular ideal. And it was quite entertaining because there are pictures of um, the police coming to arrest a whole lot of ladies who are really quite nicely attired and the police just do not know what to make of them. So in a sense, they're also kind of poking fun. It was then actually by conforming to notions of femininity, they were actually having fun at the authorities in a way, which is quite, yeah, but, which is quite yeah. amusing. Yeah. That was Emmeline Godfrey talking to Matt Elton. Emmeline's book, Femininity, Crime and Self-Defence in Victorian Literature and Society, is out now, published by Palgrave Macmillan. You can read Emmeline's feature in the December issue of BBC History magazine. And also in that issue, we have articles on Edward I, Witches on Trial, Mussolini's Popular Appeal and the Martyrdom of Thomas Beckett. You can find the magazine in all good news agents and digitally on the Kindle, Kindle Fire or iPad. Our second interview this month is with Jonathan Dimbleby, a journalist and BBC broadcaster whose career spans over 40 years. In his latest book, Destiny in the Desert, Jonathan tells the story of the Battle of El Alamein, setting it in the context of the North African theatre and a broader picture of the Second World War. This is also a story with significant personal meaning for Jonathan, as his father Richard famously reported from North Africa during the conflict. Jonathan was giving a talk at Bristol's watershed recently, and I caught up with him afterwards to find out his thoughts about this pivotal 1942 clash. So, Jonathan, I gather this is your first out-and-out history book. What prompted you to take that step, and why did you choose El Alamein for that? It's my first full history book. I've written about history in other books. I was approached by my publisher's profile and asked would you like to write a book to coincide with the 70th anniversary of the Battle of El Alamein? And I thought to myself, would I? Uh, I'm not a professional historian. And I thought and I asked around a bit. I was always interested because my father was the BBC's first war correspondent. He, he served in that role in the Middle East between 1940 up until 1942, just before the Battle of El Alamein. And I'd always wondered um, why the British were fighting in this faraway desert. For what purpose and how significant was it? So I was intrigued. So what tempted me to write the book uh, was to answer the questions. Did it matter? Did people die in vain or was it important? And what was it like? And that's what the book is about. And so I guess having written the book, you've probably come to some conclusions on those subjects. So why do you think it did matter or did it matter? It mattered, in my view, enormously. Some historians have argued that the, that the Battle of El Alamein itself was unnecessary, that the desert campaign was uh, peripheral. I think the desert campaign was pivotal and that the battle was inevitable. And for the following essential reason, we were fighting for the British Empire. The distinction between Britain and the British Empire was nugatory. Uh, uh, we were umbilically linked to the empire. The Middle East was the carotid artery of the empire, linking through the Mediterranean, through the Nile Valley, the Suez Canal, linking Britain to the empire and associated countries in Africa, India, of course, and the Far East. When a little before the Battle of El Alamein, Churchill said at a press conference in Cairo, we shall fight for Egypt and the Nile Valley, as if it were the soil of England itself. Today might sound rather extraordinary. Then was almost commonplace. It would have been astonishing if he had not said that because the empire 
and Britain were so entwined. And we depended greatly on the empire for our wealth and our prestige around the world, where we still controlled two-fifths of the planet, where uh, we had command of the seas, where the sun never set, and so forth. So that was the background to it. It was also important because Churchill persuaded the Americans, it's a long and complicated story, persuaded the Americans to fight on the ground in alliance with the British for the first time against Nazism, not in the Pacific, not in Europe, but in Africa. Now that defined the course of the Second World War because he persuaded the Americans to come in to North Africa. It was part and parcel of then going into Sicily and into Italy and fighting up through Italy. And that shaped the course of the war. So peripheral, absolutely not. Pivotal, for sure. It was clearly pivotal in, in sort of the history of the British Empire and the Anglo-American relationship in the war, but do you think it was pivotal in de the defeat of Germany as well? It's very difficult to take out one piece of the jigsaw. Let us say for the purpose of argument, there had been no fighting in the Middle East, that the empire wasn't there. Um, this is all sort of very hypothetical. Um, and that we had gone into Europe, as the Americans had wanted to do in 1942. I think the evidence is pretty compelling. It would have been a catastrophe. It would have been uh, um, a Dunkirk Mark II. It would have been very easy at that stage for Hitler to have withdrawn enough troops from the Russian front alongside the troops that were already in France to repel an invasion and to wreak havoc. So that would have been the other likely alternative. Of course, the Second World War was in many ways won and lost in, in Russia with the victory of the, of the Red Army at Stalingrad um, and then the advance westwards by the, by the, uh, the Russians on the one hand, and then after D-Day, the advance from France across to Berlin by the Western Allies. But you can't look at war by saying what ifs. The fact is that a huge uh, amount of attention from Britain was spent on the Middle East. A huge amount of armament was devoted to the Middle East. Um, it was the one place where we were fighting the Germans, the Axis powers. And Churchill persuaded Roosevelt to join in the North African venture, where eventually, after a long fighting in May of 1943, um, the Axis forces 200-plus uh, army um, surrendered. And we then went into Sicily and up through Italy, which Churchill had misdescribed to Churchill as a soft underbelly of the Axis. It turned out to be anything but a soft underbelly. So that was the way the war was fought. That's why it was uh, a pivotal part of the war. That's where the Americans went. That's what the Americans did. And the Americans were then ruling, uh, well, dominating, I should say, dominating the, the Western alliance. So the Western allies fought the war uh, according to um, a, a, a set of guiding operational principles established by Churchill because of Churchill's uh, passion for the Middle East and the coalition government's uh, endorsement of that passion. The North African campaign, as you mentioned, that went on a few, few months after El Alamein. Why, why is El Alamein such an important moment in this period? El Alamein didn't itself turn the tide 
it, it sort of marked the turning of the tide. Four days after the victory, as had already been preordained, obviously, Operation Torch, the uh, American landed in Algeria and Morocco, and the advance on Tunisia began from the west. Um, it, it, for Britain, was the first unequivocal victory after a series of defeats. Uh, it did raise morale. It raised morale of the Eighth Army. It raised the morale of the Prime Minister himself, his personal morale, his political status was enhanced. He had feared that he might go under if defeat continued after defeat. It demonstrated to the Americans that we were very seriously a force to be reckoned with. A lot of Americans rather doubted the capacity, given the evidence, of the British Army to wage war. So the determination to fight at El Alamein was uh, important, to sustain the campaign. It was also an inevitability. Once you, once you start fighting and you advance to that point, you can't just sit there, two armies facing one another. Had we not fought at El Alamein, had Rommel been able to retire uh, without inhibition back to Tripoli and then back to Tunis, um, it's not clear to me that Eisenhower or the Americans would have looked on, on that with great favor. So it had military significance, it had psychological significance, and it had immense political significance. It resonated as, a, as evidence that Britain, the British Army, was a very serious force. From the other point of view, did it do psychological damage to the Axis cause? It certainly did psychological damage to Rommel. Rommel was, all, uh, Rommel was ordered, as he knew, ludicrously, as he wrote at the time, ludicrously ordered to stand firm, to hold fast at Alamein by Hitler, victory or death. Um, and he half disobeyed that order, and then Hitler even Hitler, a, a dose of reality entered his, entered his mind and he was a, allowed to retreat. And that was a humiliating experience for Rommel. And it was around that time that he began to realize that very probably the war was unwinnable. He understood the importance of America far more than Hitler ever understood it. He knew that once America was in the war, things were going to be very difficult in any case. And I think it had a, it had a huge impact on, on him, that defeat. And I don't think the evidence from when he was next at the front, masterminding the Wehrmacht's attempts to prevent the Allies advancing across France, um, he knew that was a defensive operation that was likely to fail. It didn't stop him using all his guile and skill to avert that Germany's perspective catastrophe. But he knew that he, he sort of knew the game was up, so I think psychologically it did have a, a major impact. In terms of the battle itself, do you think Allied victory was down more to superior resources or superior military leadership? There's no question in my mind that overwhelmingly it was the resources at Montgomery's disposal. Um, 195,000 men against 100,000 exhausted Axis troops um, with. Uh, diminishing number of tanks, um, uh, a, an acute shortage of fuel. We had total air superiority. Um, back in August, well before the battle, Montgomery had told Wendell Wilkie, who was, had been the challenger in the 1940 American election for the Republicans, 
now an envoy ambassador for Roosevelt, told Wendell Wilkie, it is a mathematical certainty we will win this battle. Montgomery was very cautious, and he refused to go until he was convinced that the killing match would end in victory. Uh, Churchill would have loved him to have started earlier. He was desperate, Churchill was desperate, to win the Alamein before the Americans came into North Africa. I gather from your book that you're maybe not as keen on Montgomery as he himself was. I don't think anyone could be as keen on Montgomery <laughs> as Montgomery was on himself. Do you think he over... I mean, clearly he overinflated. Do you think his role in victory has been overinflated? Does he deserve the credit he's got for El Alamein? I don't think he deserves the credit he gave himself. I think a lot of historians have got a much clearer perspective on his contribution to the victory. Um, it was partly massive preponderance of force. It was partly his uh, readiness to fight a battle of attrition. And that was correct, but he had no choice in that. Had Auchinleck still been there, he would have had to have fought the same battle because you're fighting across a 40-mile front with the Gatara uh, depression to the south, which is virtually inaccessible, certainly, for tank warfare. And there was only one way of going through the defensive lines, and that was a, a head-on assault. As it happens, um, I don't think Montgomery uh, was very astute. I'm not a military historian, but I think the evidence is quite compelling that he uh, underestimated the amount of time that it would take to advance at the very beginning of the battle, which left uh, the, the tanks horribly exposed to German firepower. Um, he expected the, the tanks to do things that cavalry commanders rightly were very dubious about and then blamed then when it, them when it didn't work. He, he said at the beginning of the last part of the battle, when he'd been forced to stop, pause and regroup, much to Churchill's frustration, and instituted what was called supercharge, which was the final, which led to the final victory. He said, um, uh, this was the master plan and only the master could write it. Well, that was a piece of vainglory which uh, has rightly been ridiculed because it wasn't just him, it was his corps commanders as well. So he took a great deal of the glory for a battle which could only be fought essentially one way. I think also there is no doubt that he was able to raise some spirits and there were those in the Eighth Army who say that he was a great injection of energy and enthusiasm and commitment and will that made us strong. But you will also find many who fought, who thought that he was just a PR merchant going around in his funny hat and that uh, he made no essential contribution. It's very difficult to weigh those things from 70 years. But I think that as a battlefield commander, he was good, uh, but as a strategic thinker, he was knocked spots off by the likes of Wavell and Auchinleck, although, of course, they were commanders-in-chief of the Middle East Theatre, and in Auchinleck's case, also commander of the Eighth Army, whereas Montgomery had a pretty simple goal. It was simply to win El Alamein. Alexander looked after the, the sort of the bigger picture. And what impression did you get of what it was like for the ordinary soldiers to fight in these desert conditions? I think he was pretty desperate. You were there in really awful conditions. Extreme heat, followed by extreme cold. Flies, terrible dust storms, sandstorms that 
entered every orifice of your own body and of your vehicle. Um, miserable food, waiting for a very long time, nothing happening, bouts of boredom therefore, followed by moments, sometimes then days, of extreme danger um, in which you saw your comrades drop and die. Uh, I, I look at it, and the more I sort of came to understand it, the more I am in awe of the ordinary soldiers who stuck it for so long. Very many of them not absolutely clear why they were there, uh, because I don't think many of them necessarily had the, the big picture that was Churchill's big picture. But loyalty to their platoon, loyalty to their battalion, loyalty to the regiment was very important, and they, they stuck it out as comrades, and I'm in awe of them. Have you had a chance to meet any of the veterans in the process of doing the book? For my book, I didn't go and meet veterans because there was so much that I read of their, uh, of their reports of what had happened, the interviews that had been done with them. It was so rich, a source, published mainly, and a lot of it held in the Imperial War Museum. But in the course of talking about the book, I've come across... Um, several, and that sense of awe has only been uh, enhanced by the experience. I met the other day um, a man of 90 who at the age of 18 had been a squadron leader in the RAF. By this time, incidentally, for the most part, the, the, the RAF, the, the Desert Air Force, uh, co commanded the skies. He was flying the first choice to succeed Auchinleck, General Gott, who had hitched a lift on a plane that he was flying uh, from 8th Army headquarters, or the RAF headquarters, down to Cairo for a, a, a meeting with Churchill just after he'd been appointed. And they got on the plane and they flew very often only about 50 feet. He was telling me this, just 50 feet above the ground because of the, uh, the threat from the uh, German Messerschmitts. And they were attacked, six attacked them. He, uh, the plane was brought down, he crash-landed, and very unusually, he said, which suggested to him that the Germans knew that Gott was on the plane and that he'd been appointed. Uh, they came again and attacked the plane on the ground, and, and Gott was killed. And this 18-year-old squadron leader, flying up and down the desert through this dangerous corridor, in uh, just beggar's belief, and he was fit strong, a voice as strong as you would like at the age of 90. And I thought, my goodness, could I have done that? You can't believe what people like he achieved. And, and of course you have your own personal link with, with the battle because um, your father was there for quite a few years. How, how did it feel to, to use him as a historical resource in this way? Well, I have partly... Um, uh, when I wrote a biography of him a long, long time ago, 1975, I came across his Middle East experiences by going through BBC papers and by reading his own diaries. So I knew that what he had done, and I'd written a bit about that. Um, um, in my book, he plays a very small part. He is there as one of the reporters describing the scene. He happened to have had a particularly interesting experience because the, and, 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 and a pretty wretched experience because the BBC was regarded as the most important voice uh, 
of transmitting what was happening in, on that front to the rest of the world. And he was the man, he was a young man. Um, and he was chafing because he was subjected to the censorship of Orkinlex people in Cairo. And he wrote in his diary furiously about, I think they've got it completely wrong, people want to know the truth. Orkinlek was deeply at odds with Churchill at this time, which was before the Battle of El Alamein, which led to him being sacked. The BBC was under pressure because Dimbleby seemed to be reporting what Orkinlek wanted, which was against uh, the tone and aspiration of what the government was after. So my father was summarily withdrawn at just about the same time that Orkinlek was withdrawn. It's a, it's a small subplot, but it's quite an intriguing little story. And my, my father became a sort of BBC non-person for a bit um, for reasons he couldn't begin to understand because no one ever told him. So did you only find out in the course of working on the book then? Yeah. So you kind of added to your kind of family history through... Yes, it's part, it's, it, it is. I was in, I, I'd been interested in it because he was um, the war correspondent there. That's how I was first interested. Um, um, and the sense of what he had gone through and endured. He, 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 he travelled hugely across the whole of that theatre. He went, he, he went to, to the fighting in Eritrea, in Palestine, Syria, etc. Um, back and forth across the desert as well. There's a, one of the stories that I find most entrancing, in one of the points where we were appearing to have victory, which was uh, 1940-41, Christmas and New Year, he was in Benghazi, and they were still being attacked from the air. He played the piano rather well. He was in this room with apparently lots of people. Anyway, he wrote about it in his diary. And on New Year's Eve, he was playing Old Lang Syne. And he describes how um, the sticks of bombs landed around from the uh, Italians uh, in the air. He said, he said and the, the, the noisier the bombs, the louder I played. <laughs> it was a wonderful image to me of, of the sort of... Just the insouissance, the, the, the sort of the unstated guts of everyone who was involved. So coming back to um, the, the wider picture, um, actually Niall Barr wrote an article in our magazine recently where he said that this was, he felt, the last great hurrah of the British Empire because it's the last time that Britain and the Empire fought really without great American assistance. Would you agree with that point of view? Yes. Um, I think Barr is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a very fine historian. I'm not merely saying that because he's been extremely flattering about my book, um, uh, saying that I brought it, what was sort of peripheral, back to the pivotal centre. Um, he's absolutely right. We didn't fight another battle alone. The rest of the Second World War, we were a junior partner with the Americans, an important partner, but increasingly a junior partner. Um, the effect of the war was the draining of energy and resource that entailed the loss of empire and the recognition that the empire in the 20th century, second half of the 20th century, was an anachronism. It's one of the ironies. Churchill was passionately fighting to defend the empire. The Americans came to the rescue of the empire effectively in North Africa while deploring the fact that Britain had an empire. And the outcome was who became the next imperial force in the world. Not the British, but the Americans. 
It really was a moment of kind of changing of empires, really. I, th I think you can, you, can, you can write back, as it were, read back. You can read back to El Alamein and say this was, as Barr said, the, the, the last hurrah of an empire. Churchill, of course, did not recognize that. He was still uh, fighting for the empire. And in fact, very few people, right? There were those who did, but the minority. It took some time for the reality to seep in. And, but there was no, it wasn't, it was an imperial victory because that victory was won not only by the British, it was won by Indians, it was won by New Zealanders, Australians, South Africans, and in very large measure. It was an astonishing tour de force as the sun was beginning to set. Just finally, 70 years ago, the bells rang out in celebration of El Alamein. Now that we're around the time of the 70th anniversary, how do you think we should remember the battle? I think we should remember it for what it was, that it, it, it marked a very important moment, morally, psychologically, politically, um, in British history, uh, that a great many people perished to create that moment, that we should understand its place in the story of Britain, not to exaggerate it, but not to sideline it, and that we should look in wonder at those who, on the battlefield and in the high commands, uh, found themselves acting out this extraordinary conflict, and be grateful that it played its part in ensuring that the forces of light triumphed over the forces of darkness. That was Jonathan Dimbleby. His book, Destiny in the Desert, The Road to El Alamein, is out now, published by Profile. And that's about all for this episode. Do join us next week when we'll be discussing Edward I and map-making through history. And in the meantime, do have a look at our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find all manner of great content. And you can, of course, keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook as well. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.